Hey, I'm Jeremy Utley. And I am Mar Kershenson. Welcome to the Paint on Pipette podcast. I'm the father of four daughters, and I've got blind spots. I know what the world is like from my perspective, but I don't know what it's like from theirs. So I set out with my friend, Mar Hershenson, to understand the perspective of female founders from a range of diverse industries and cultural backgrounds. I'm excited to have you on the learning journey with us as we dive into these amazing conversations. All right, let's get started. In this episode, we talk to Kim Schreiber and Sabrina Cap Ramos, the founders of Neuronet, which is a technology-enabled concierge service that curates individualized support for adults with disabilities. Neuronav is powered by a proprietary recommendation engine that matches one's needs with appropriate rated services and tracks quality of life metrics on an individual level. The cost of care for this program is funded by the $72 billion national Medicaid budget and is therefore accessible to all people. We talk in this episode with Kim and Sabrina about wanting to be a part of social change about deciding to embark upon social enterprise and surviving the drunken walk of early product development. We talk with them about founder market fit and discovering your need of a co-founder and falling in love with the right partner. We talk with them about their belief in the inherent dignity of people and broadening the net of inclusion to see what you don't see. We also talk with them about learning how to be a woman in this world and entering into permission to be yourself. We talk about the impact of studying abroad and breaking paradigms and identities, about building community with strong women, and about the challenges and unique advantages of being a woman in the fundraising process. Maybe we could start just by way of introduction is if you want to tell us a little bit about how did you meet and decide to undertake Neuronav as a business? Yeah, the journey for me, I think really began in college and in understanding wanting to be a part of social change and seeing a lot of injustice in the world. And I was studying foreign affairs in sub-Saharan Africa and working with a lot of community organizers in the continent and realized it doesn't have to be through all government or through all nonprofits. There are new models that are coming online, combining business practices and social good. And so I was exposed to that concept pretty early and also some frustrations and mis- mixed incentives and nonprofit models. And then my career you know, went in different directions. I, I was a journalist at Bloomberg and And then was approached by a CEO that I was actually interviewing for a story who said, why don't you just join me and help scale a social venture across Sub-Saharan Africa, combining mission and business know-how. And so that's kind of where my goals and intentions took me. And in that experience in a company called Off-Grid Electric, now Zola Electric, I was really apprenticed on how to scale a social venture that both has meaningful business impact and social impact. And so that was a three-year boot camp in a lot of ways. From that experience, I really grew in a lot of skill sets. And at the same time, in my personal life was seeing another huge area for potential impact, which was in the disability space, because my little brother, Steven's autistic, and he was approaching age 22 at that time. And I started hearing about how 
scary services for adulthood look for anyone with a, a developmental disability in the US. And I thought, especially comparing that to, you know, being in rural villages in Sub-Saharan Africa and talking about true challenges in, in funding, how is that possible in all the public funding we have available in the US that it's so poorly allocated and not serving people? And I came to business school with those skills and that hope to start to make a difference for folks like my little brother in adulthood. And that's where I met Sabrina and Mar pretty quickly on in that business school experience. So tap in your girl. (laughs) I came sort of sideways into business school. I didn't actually attend Stanford Business School except for in the classes that I took with Kim. But my husband was in Kim's class. And Kim and I met very early on by way of my dog, Pancake. (laughs) And we became friends. And for the previous six years, I had been working in product design. And I'd been working to help companies basically get off the ground. So I'd worked with a ton of startups, helping them go from, I have a big, huge idea, and I have no idea how to actually make it happen to an actual viable product. And so I had, you know, I'd been working in this space for a long time. Aaron was, my husband was going to business school. And I was like, well, while I'm there, I want to take Startup Garage and I want to take like, I want to take these classes because this is like what I do and it'd be super fun. But I knew that the only way to do that would be to find someone who would kindly take me into their group and let me sort of go through those experiences with them. You know, I met Kim. We got along right away. I loved her passion. I loved her energy. And she was like, oh, well, we're doing gamification for adult learning. And at the time, I mean, and I had been working on gamification for mobile for personal finance. So I was like, oh, I have a skill set that can help you. And so we started working together. I just fell in love with him and with the mission. And really through that experience, started to recognize my own experience in the disability space. So I was diagnosed with ADHD in college. So actually quite late, which is not uncommon for females. And I actually received services through Disabled Student Services on campus. And it was actually like, they didn't provide anything crazy, but it just made such a big difference in my ability to show up to school and to complete my work and to like get the structure that I needed. And I've gone on a really long journey since then and just like understanding how my neurodivergency changes the way that I show up in the world and the way that I think differently and the way that I see the world differently. And really, you know, through this experience with Naranav, I just see so much of myself and even some of my own pain and struggles in the people that we work with. That when I think when we were in your class, Jeremy, and we were doing um, Launchpad together, we were like, well, you know, I think Kim had said, I need a co-founder. I can't do this alone. Would you do this with me? And I said, I don't know. Let's sort of test it out. And in your classes, I think when we finally really consolidated and said, yeah, this is the right thing for both of us. We want to do this together and we can do this together. What did you see that made you say, even to use a specific quote, Sabrina, you said, I fell in love with Kim. What made you fall in love with her, so to speak? You know what I mean? Because it's easy to go, yeah, oh yeah, totally. I mean, Kim's great, right? We all go, we nod and then we move on. But what was it? Many partnerships don't work. It's not clear. There's not that sense of true camaraderie. So what made you fall in love with her? And then I don't know if it's a different question, but when did you really know, you know what, this will work. We should be co-founders. Yeah, that's hard. I think it's funny because we talk about, you know, starting a business is like entering a marriage. And we joke a lot about like, I got married twice this year, once to Kim and once to my husband. But I think probably similar to any other type of partnership, 
we have enough thing, enough things in common that we get along and have enjoy our time together, but we're different enough that we play to each other's strengths and can really work off of one another. And we each bring a unique perspective. And I think like Kim and I met and, you know, you just get like an energy from a person you're like, okay, we're going to be friends. And we decided to like make empanadas, which is like, you know, my family's from Argentina and and so she was just like, yeah, sure. Let's make it. That sounds great. She like came over and she was also at the time, she was like, oh, wait, I also need to practice my talk, which I'm giving, which like at business school is this like really intense emotional like speech. So we like made it bananas and she practiced her talk for the very first time ever in my apartment. And so I think like we're just, you know, I think we're both people who are spontaneous and who like the outdoors and who are willing to sort of take on the world. But we also think about the world in a very different way. And so we are really able to push one another and push back on one another and come and have really disagreements, but come to each other as equals and come away from those disagreements, having learned more and not with animosity. And I think those are things that like are just important in relationships generally, and especially when you're going to be spending a significant portion of time with that person, it helps to get along with them and to be able to fight with them in a really healthy way. And I think we do do those things well. I want to get to that question about animosity or that topic about animosity. But just before we dive into that, because that's real, right? Yeah. But before we dive into that, I want to revisit something that you said and ask Kim about it. Sabrina said there was a point at which Kim had mentioned, I need a co-founder. I don't think I can do this on my own. It'd be really interesting to hear from you, Kim, about how did that realization dawn upon you? And what was the process? What has been the process for you of basically sharing what is a very personal vision and mission and in entering into kind of an equal partnership in fulfilling that mission? How did you learn you needed a co-founder? And what has it been like to share it with someone else? Yeah, well, a lot happened in the two years of market research for this company. So it was meeting Sabrina through Pancake, her dog, right before business school started. And I want to bring Marin because she played a role in this early stage too, where that first quarter, you know, I, I had a mission. I was like, I'm at business school for a reason. And I have, you know, it's cool to meet everybody and like to start taking classes, but we have stuff to do. And so pretty quickly met a few people or talked about the idea of, hey, who wants to work in the disability space and try some some stuff with us? Like who wants to who wants to experiment, who wants to get their hands dirty and start learning with me what needs to be done. And so that's when I met Sabrina. Well, I brought Sabrina in and was like, hey, there's this class, Lean Launchpad, that, you know, apparently is really hard to get into your first year, but I think like that'll get us started. And also met Kim Saloner and Tiffany and Paulina, like we so, and Emma, Emma's like on our team today. So we kind of created this team of really six awesome, powerful women from all over the Stanford campus. So Sabrina came in as like our advisor and leader in products, brainstorming and development. And then we also had someone from the School of Education and a master's in computer science, another MBA, two, an undergrad who was like, wow, you're actually way more talented than any of us. And you're <laughs> so young. This group came together and we really put our heart into the application and really wanted to have this experience early on and start working on the business concepts. So we applied for Lean Launchpad together. And that's where we met Mar. And Mar was our professor in our first quarter, really starting to understand and figure out the marketplace. And getting back to your question around co-founder, the six of us really 
spent a lot of time together and learned a lot in that drunken walk, we call it. And at the end of that experience, you know, we'd gone through gamified skill building was how we started. And then we went into a virtual assistant and an emotional support. And so all of these ways for technology to really help some of the pain points we were seeing in the market. And then we had a pretty intense conversation at the end of that of, is this the market opportunity we want to go after? Is this the impact that's needed? How are we really looking at the insights from our customers? And we're like, do we want further isolation on technology? Is that deep enough for us? Is that really changing some of these pain points we heard? And kind of shifted into housing. And so this team has kind of came together, grew to 12 people. We, were, we called ourselves the neurodiversity nerds over those two years. People came in and out, were a part of that experience. The next phase was, was a whole journey into housing. And we all kept in touch around what was going on. And I just, whoever was available, kind of partnered with that team of people to keep going and keep iterating this business model. And I think getting to really committing to a co-founder or knowing I didn't want to solo found was probably an intention of mine throughout because uh, I'm a big wall rock climber and I have a climbing partner and we scaled El Cap as partners. El Capitan, it's the big mountain in Yosemite. And that experience to me was just so fruitful in learning about partnership and doing impossible things. It was a is truly a 10 year journey. And so when I looked at something as impossible seeming as like changing the disability service landscape, it's like, wow, yeah, I think that'd be kind of tough to do alone. And then really got, I think, other layers of experience in that doing market research for a summer and living in neurodiverse homes and actually getting exposed to a lot of like pain and trauma in this space and recognizing like, these are such real intense things. And it's hard to hold all of that myself and to think productively and be able to express that with the kind of emotional burden of wanting to bring into fruition a huge change. I had been able to turn to kind of Sabrina in all of those moments as a friend and as a collaborator. And when I thought of taking the Launchpad course in my fine, I, I did I, literally every course you could at Stanford that had anything to do with market research on a startup. So did Startup Garage, Sabrina was there for that, Startup Garage 1 and 2. And then two, when we were approaching like Launchpad, I was like, this is the last quarter. There's this incredible fellowship that could get started if we won it. And so went to Sabrina and was like, hey, do you have the capacity to take this class really seriously and see this as launching? <laughs> and if it goes well, like we could, you know, we could be intentional about our co-founder relationship. So that's what we did. And and that's where you came in, Jeremy. <laughs> and we launched. And a year later, yeah, it's been. It's been pretty wild. I like that you're like this super persistent, great founder. But I always hear afterwards, after we've backed the company years later, uh, founder will be like, well, there was a moment where I almost gave up. I don't know if you guys had that moment because I always definitely saw you guys point through. And what was that worst moment? If, you know, on that drunken walk where you're like, that's it. I think after that summer, I was really bad at pacing. And so after that summer, I, I did like a G-Mix in France for four weeks in a disability nonprofit and then 10 weeks of road tripping and then started class. I literally went to like a disability housing event, like right wow. from the road. So I think I was kind of burnt out when I came into the Startup Garage 1 class and we were still working on it. And yeah, there, yeah, there were some heavy moments. We, I think... 
it was just recognizing that feeling of actually, there was a coaching professor who uh, showed me this book, Trauma Stewardship, which I think is mm. a big part of how practices that we're now embedding into our team of getting exposed to people are, are kind of opening up their whole story to us, their house, their family, all the tr- struggles they're going into in adulthood right now with a disability. And so I think that was actually a really like there were low moments. I wouldn't say that was like the kind of um, are we going to do it or not moment. There was a separate moment for that. But this the emotional low moments of like kind of holding that space and processing that I think we're like, wow, how more about how am I going to be taking care of myself in this? And I think Sabrina's played a huge role in that. But also how are we as leaders going to be creating really healthy practices as a team for the roles that we play? So that was actually a huge learning lesson, but definitely took some grit to get through and some rest. There was a moment where we almost didn't do it when I was kind of torn between taking a housing, disability housing job (laughs) because, you know, I met so many people in the space and we were like, wow, this is a really cool, innovative model. And it was take this job to really help transform housing or, hey, Sabrina, like, do we think we want to try this cool thing because there's this massive opportunity in the market and a million challenges ahead of us in that road? But where do we want to have impact and what's the right path? That was uh, another kind of, I think, inflection point going into Launchpad and the Launchpad experience really, I don't know, there's a moment of like jump or no, don't jump. And we jumped. Love that. That's a great story. I know you're one of the the, you know, I think that the companies reflect their founders. And like you said, we wanted your company values to reflect some of what you guys care about. Maybe you can talk about what is your company culture and how do you make sure everybody, you know, is part of it. You want to take this one, Sabrina? Yeah. We have like, these are our tenants. But I think our culture, primarily from a place of inclusion and just believing in the worth of every individual. I think that a lot of companies can say that they value diversity and they value inclusion, but I think it's something that we take really seriously. I am neurodivergent. I have experienced what it's like to not necessarily fit in in a lot of places in a lot of times in my life. I am first-generation American. My family is from Argentina. And so I have very much seen what it feels like to live in two cultures at the same time. You know, and I think like even beyond that, like talking about what it's like to be a woman, I've had a lot of experiences where I was frustrated that I wasn't taken seriously because I'm a woman or because I am attractive or whatever, and feeling very frustrated that that's sort of the world that we live in. And I think through that actually really fell into the idea of like intersectionality and like intersectional feminism and believing that we all have different identities and we all have different privileges and we need to be really cognizant of our own privileges and own them and recognize where that has had a place in our own success. And so I think there's like, at least for me, I have a really deeply held belief that our world is only better when it is more inclusive. So I think that that's something that we really bring. We have a lot of team members who are neurodivergent and we have racial diversity and it's something that we always like when we're hiring, it's something that we bring up and we talk about, like, how do we make sure that we are creating access to people who might not have traditionally had access to the workforce or to the kinds of roles that we're offering? Part of that probably just because we're in the disability space and disability, there's a lot of like inclusion, but I think it's something that we really strive for. 
and take to heart. I would love to learn a little bit more about this inclusion thing. I mean, it's it's such an important topic. And I can speak for myself as a steward of a major program at the D School. That's It's something that I really care about and I'm mindful of. And I'm also mindful, again, of this notion that there are blind spots. We reach the communities we reach. And we don't know the communities that we don't know we reach that we that we don't reach. Sorry, that's I don't know. That's like a triple negative. Can you do that grammatically? But I'd be curious to hear from you all. Do you have practices or ways of cross-examining your own process to make sure that you're getting beyond maybe the ways you've thought about defining inclusion and unknowingly excluded? Or how do you learn and continue to broaden the net of inclusion, so to speak? Yeah, great question. I think a lot of it and and I feel like Sabrina brings just a rich history in her design work and human centered thinking and that helps us foster an attitude of curiosity in all spaces that we're working. And I think also just kind of being on the ground and and building this company really from the ground up, we are really intentionally seeking out the voice of disability advocates and and communities that I think what our insight was that a lot of what has been not working in this space is having people decide for a disabled individual what life should look like or can look like or services and support can look like. So when we you know, set our mission to, our mission is uh, increasing quality of life for all individuals with developmental disabilities, all adults. And I think that's kind of shifting, like our, our mental state of like what that mission looks like to me is shifting to more creating a space of belonging for all. I think this has been kind of a, an eye-opening journey that we as founders will kind of continue to grow and learn from in creating listening spaces and also in measurement. So a lot of what we've learned and developed is creating learnings from people with disabilities and people with disabilities is a very wide, broad set of people. And so we do kind of not only hire and inclusive practices to make sure that people are creating the services that best serve them, but work deeply with our customers around designing that and understanding that. And so two areas of focus in that mission of inclusion and belonging for everyone are really focused on some of the metrics that are broken and unjust in the current system. And so the numbers are really, really apparent that if you are a person with a disability, that you are advocating for yourself, which often the term is self-advocate, it's very difficult typically to work within the system and get the services and benefits you need when there's no supports to really structure and help you on that process. So one of the measurements we have is how much of our client base is our self-advocates directly interfacing with us and not having family members or other support staff a part of that process. Another thing that we're measuring is also looking at the numbers and disparity around race and income. And those numbers are published in California database around what the deltas are between, say, a Hispanic community <laughs> and white communities. And so we see those numbers, they create what success looks like to us to be able to have equitable access for all these different groups. And we kind of approach it with a pretty, I would say, humble and listening attitude as to the best ways to restructure our services to best serve those communities. You have a company where you have the families, you have the person that has disability, you have the government, 
there's a lot of players in your product. How do you do user-centric design you know, when there are all those multiple users or participants in the product? I mean, user-centered design is about understanding those different perspectives and being aware of them so that you can design better. And I think there is sort of a design principle of like designing for the extremes so that you can find something that's better for everyone. And I think you could almost see this in that way, right? Where we're designing for so many different groups that we do have to make sure that the things that we create are accessible, right? So we're working with a disabled population. We have to, you know, we don't always succeed here, but we know that accessibility is important. And by making it accessible for those people, we make it accessible for all of those other groups. And then I think, obviously, you do also have to be careful in design not to design for like, you know, so many people that it, it becomes sort of designing for no one. And so I think we do have to be very careful and we do talk about a lot. Who are we designing this particular experience for? Are we designing, you know, if we're, you know, we do some like training curriculum, is it for families or is it for these government partners? And who is going to be the end user of this? And if it's going to be multiple parties, which one do we want to optimize for? And which one do we really think would get the most benefit from like our really tailoring it to that group? So, you know, I think it's it's like with any any design, there's some aspect of it where you're like, yeah, please bring on the different perspectives. That helps us be better and really see those blind spots. I think like you were saying, Germany, like, I only know what I know, but the more educate the more that you can educate yourself, and whether that's through going out and finding diverse resources or whether that's just talking to lots of different people that you might not have thought to speak to, you're going to learn something. You can apply that. So it sounds definitely more difficult than a single user. <laughs> yeah, but yeah like, and I think like any any startup I've worked with has like 20 users, right? And usually it's about like you do so much as a designer, you do so much wrangling of like, okay, who do we, who actually matters here? Who are we actually designing for? That I think it's similar here where it's like, okay, they're government partners and their families and this, but like we are designing for self-advocates. Those are the people who need to be able to use this. And if it works for them, it's probably going to work for their families. Can you tell us about a, a time where there we felt like there was a tension recently in that question of who are we designing for and how you actually made the decision? Yeah. So I think Sabrina's head probably went to where my head went, where there's kind of the top down principles of kind of where we are in the ecosystem, where our funding comes from a healthcare funding source. You know, we're, we work within Medicaid and there's a lot of trends and changes and looking at what private partnerships would look like and government spending streams look like. And then when we, where we also design from primarily is bottom up within families and around families. And so one of the, I think, realities of what kind of broader systems change looks like for us is balancing the quality of life that everyone should care about and does care about with a lot of the cost constraints and challenges that state budgets have and that looking at value-based care and changes in Medicaid and, and managed care organizations that do matter because it is a finite amount of resources. So as we look at designing our product to increase transparency of how budgets are used and how effectively they're used, we need to be cognizant of how the government is viewing those changes and increases in budget and that we are clearly articulating the change in quality of life that comes along with those budget changes. So when we kind of bridge those gaps between cost sensitivity of one stakeholder 
and quality sensitivity of another stakeholder, we really advocate for our clients to get the custom services that they need to be successful in the community. And we do so kind of creatively knowing that there are constraints and that that overall allocation will be measured and compared. So I'd say that's like a broader one. Sabrina, Sabrina's mind probably also went to within a family and within those conversations, how we design for the multiple stakeholders that we serve. If you want to add some color there. And I think that's right. It's like, there's so many different places that I could take this. But if you like, like speaking about the family, I think we often see tension within a family of self-advocates who are coming of age and becoming adults and wanting to do the things that adults do. And families who have spent a lifetime trying to keep their kids safe and trying to, you know, really having to fight at every turn for that person to have access to basic care. So you can see this really big tension between, you know, independence and wanting to maybe live independently or find a job or even have a relationship with someone and a family who's terrified of that person being taken, taken advantage of or hurt. And so there's a lot of, I think, really delicate work that has to happen in sort of easing apart the fear of that person being hurt from like their right to sort of self-determination and independence. And I think that for us, there's a lot of very conscious little design decisions that go into that. So for example, on our customer contract, we list the individual first and then have their parent sign second. Whereas a lot of parents just want to sign and not even there, you know, they should know what they're signing and that they should be putting their signature on something that is going to affect their life. Or for example, naming, this is a silly one, but how do we name our customer folders and how do we keep track of who our customers are? Is it by the parent who's usually our primary point of contact or is it by the self-advocate? And we very intentionally have the name of the client underneath the name of the self-advocate, because even though we may not have as much direct contact with them, they are the person that we're serving and we cannot forget that. Well, maybe we can go back to one of the comments you had, Sabrina, about not being taken seriously because you're a woman. I'd love to double tap on that, maybe some advice for folks that will eventually listen to that. And then, you know, we can extend it to, you know, you went through a a fundraise for this, you know, how hard was it or how easy was it? I don't know. But, you know, I'm sure you learned something being a female, being in this space of social impact, you know, has had something change the way you fundraise that. So important. But let's start with the first one. Like, what was that frustration about not being taken seriously? And how do you deal with it? Yeah, you know, it's funny when you first asked us to do this, and we're just sort of like reflections on what it's like to be a woman founder, I actually took a few notes of just things that were like in my head. And I think one of the first things that came to me was like a thing that I reflected on a lot. I think I had, a, there was a trading period in, in my life where I was really trying to figure out how to be a woman in society and like very consciously had to think about whether what I wore changed the way that someone perceived me. And whether my neckline was higher or and like the bra that I wore or the, you know, how short or how long my hair was would change whether or not someone believed that I was capable of doing a job. And that is something that I think, like, if you're looking out of it, it's incredibly frustrating that I have had to spend so much mental energy on something that fundamentally does not matter to my ability to actually do work, but does matter in this society. When I think that 
you know, one of the things that has come out of that is like, I think I finally got to this place where as a woman in, in this current society, you can never win. You're either too pretty or you're not pretty enough. You're too, you know, you're too ambitious or you're not ambitious enough. You wear too much makeup or you don't wear enough. Your hair's too long. It's too short. You're too big. You're too skinny. Like there's never, you can literally never win. And I think that like, one, we need to dismantle that because it's awful. But two, I think you can start to gain solace in this idea that like, I just need to be myself and find a way to be comfortable in my own skin and find a way to present in a way that I am comfortable with and that makes me feel good and forget about what everyone else says. And I think that's a, that's a really hard and long journey for, I think, a young woman in this country. And it's easy on this side of things to be like, just, you know, just be confident in who you are. Like, I do think that really it is about find the things that make you happy, find the things that make you feel comfortable and confident and lean into those things until you do feel comfortable and confident. Can you tell us the moment I mean, I think that's so profound and so important. What was the moment that you not had, maybe, I don't know if it's realization or the conviction, but I need to be myself. I just need to be myself. And you felt almost, I don't know if it's permission, what that right word is, but when did you realize it and how, and how did it change how you started showing up? You know, I don't think there was ever ever any one moment. I think there were a lot of times in my life where I felt really confident and then I felt really not confident. And like, you know, I think that it's a battle. But one thing that I think was really important for me when I was in college, I studied abroad for a year in England. And Mm -hmm. the humor is very different. And some of the expectations are very different. And I think I finally felt like I fit into a place like I spent a lot of my life not fitting in and like feeling like I like I wasn't funny or like my humor didn't make sense. And then like in England, realizing that I just have my dad's humor and he has a very European sense of humor. And of course, Americans aren't going to think I'm funny. (laughs) Like, I think I finally got this, like I learned that, oh, just because I don't fit in in one space doesn't mean I don't fit in everywhere. I remember that year I made some really great friends. And I think it was when I really felt like I came into my own and felt like, I don't know. I think I like that was a really important year for me just in my life. And I think some of it was just in recognizing that where you are and who you're with makes a big difference in how you feel about yourself and surrounding yourself. And actually, that was the year that I think also did. I was going through therapy because I was struggling with like, I have ADHD. And what does that mean for me? And how does that impact my life? And one of the things that I really learned in that moment in that year actually was that I actually get to choose who my friends are. Like, I think I had, again, growing up, you know, I was just awkward a lot of my school years. And so I think I kind of had this feeling like, oh, I'm just like lucky if I have friends or like if people want to hang out with me and really learning that like, no, I I can choose the people that I'm around. And if people don't make me feel good, I don't need to spend time. Yeah, Um, it's, uh, it's so interesting that actually being aware that there's no normal, there's no kind of being exposed to different makes you accept yourself. <laughs> in mm-hmm. a way, but mm-hmm. I think you're totally right about that. Yeah, it's really hard as a mom of a daughter, and driving has four daughters, the pressure is so high that I think exposure to more is maybe a good mm-hmm. medicine for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Kim, what about you? Did you have a similar kind of reflection or a, as you considered our invitation? It sounds like Sabrina, I love it. Just actually be like, what was my experience? Anything you want to add or from your own experience? I think I have like learned a lot through a sport that I've been really passionately pursuing for so long. So being a rock climber 
in a pretty male dominated space <laughs> and kind of holding my own in that, I think created a lot of lessons that I apply to being a business leader. And yeah, and I think there's a lot of reflections I have, uh, especially I think the Stanford experience being so self-reflective and what is expected in, in gender or not. But there's so much about showing up to a space that is... <laughs> almost all dudes. (laughs) Like I remember being in a campground once and I was the only female of 50 people. (laughs) And so feeling intimidated and feeling like maybe I'm not in the right place. And then coming up to a climb and that expectation and also feeling the expectation of like, well, I really can't mess up because then all women (laughs) will be seen that way. But I think one of the big lessons and experiences in that for me that that has carried over is a sense of community in fellow strong women. And so really pursuing climbing with other women and mentoring other women and being mentored by other women. I found a fellow stubborn woman who wanted to climb big walls with me and we've done all of our walls together. And we were peers. Usually you go with someone who is more experienced with you when you do things like that. We wanted to do it together as ladies. It was really cool because she created a video of our journey We actually were climbing in Yosemite the other day and on our way down, bumped into a group of three ladies and doing the type of climb we do, it's really rare to see women at all. And we realized that actually this whole wall was women. (laughs) There are five women. And they told us how they saw that video and were inspired, encouraged to climb (laughs) and to, to do a wall. And so I think there's so many lessons from that in building kind of strength and confidence and showing up in a male dominated space and finding ways to support each other as a community and just shattering a lot of stereotypes that has helped me enter spaces as a business leader and be like, well, there's a lot of guys here, but I've shown up before. Wow. I remember some founders that we spoke with, Ellie and Muri of The Landing. I think you know them. They're they're maybe three three years out of Launchpad. But one thing, I think it was Miri, she said, you know, with this, the the dealing with imposter syndrome, she said, anytime I feel imposter syndrome, this really stuck with me. She said, I just do something 10 times and then I'm not an imposter anymore. And I love that. It's like the only way to get experience is to get experience and to do it and to know that when I do it, at some point, I'll become the kind of person who's done that rather than the person who hasn't done it yet. There's a lot of power there. I wonder about the raising capital. Hmm. Mar had asked also, you know, as you went through the fundraising process, what was it? What was that experience like for you all? And what lessons did you take away that you might be able to share with others as well? Yeah. And how was it different? If it was different. I'm not going to assume anything between female investors versus male investors. If there is a difference. Yeah, I think it really depends on the person. It's so funny. So Sabrina's husband is a founder. My partner is a founder. So we have pretty hands-on experience with their experiences, if that makes sense. And we get to hear all sides of the coin here. Deep, deep knowledge. I'd love to go to those dinners and see, you know, right? on the wall. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fun. We swap, you know, you can imagine what we talk about yeah. a lot. Yeah, I think that there's things that were probably different about our experience than their experiences. There were moments where I was like, wow, I think that I probably am being pretty treated pretty differently as a female right now. I think some of it is just, you know, in in coaching each other, 
both Sabrina and I are part of Galvanizers, which is like a ladies group out of Stanford. And, and we're both in different gal groups. So we kind of chat with our gal groups as, as well about these experiences. And those conversations are like, before having an investor call, I think a lot of that experience of sharing your idea and being evaluated by your capabilities as a team, so much is just raw confidence. <laughs> it's showing up with that confidence and that conviction. And there's coaching that happened in these gal groups or from other advisors or, or people that's like, put on like your like powerful white man perspective, like even in the language being used of like, show up as like, you know, a privileged white guy. <laughs> like that is some of the like idea. Cause it's, I think what I felt still in those conversations is seeing a difference in response by that energy level and that confidence and kind of what I was expected to be, where I think my natural tendency is confident. It's not boastful or arrogant. And so yeah. I, I almost <laughs> felt like I had to turn on a, another layer of like, outside of my comfort zone of like, yes, I'm so certain of this, where I usually yeah. I'm like, actually, I'm pretty conservative about that. We're running about four different tests right now about that exact point, because Sabrina and I are perfectionists. And we're going to do that about a million times before we'd ever say that this is how the future will look for sure. You know, so I felt yeah. that there was definitely a culture and mode that seemed a lot seemed to pull me to be a bit of a different character than maybe I would naturally be in terms of like arrogance. <laughs> and in terms of, I would say, yeah, I, I think, I think also just other coaching was watch your uptick and kind of how your voice sounds. And I just ignored that. I'm like, if you're going to judge me differently because of the way I sound as a woman, that's your loss. And, oh, and I remember had a lot of good deals. I remember that conversation and I was just like, no, <laughs> like that whole, like there's that sort of gendered advice that like, oh, to fit in, you have to be less of a woman. You have to do fewer things that women typically do. And like that to me is just this like, oh, you're never going to fit in because you have to fit in as a man to be able to make it. And I remember when you, you're like, well, I've been coached to do this. And I was like, no, <laughs> you yeah, shouldn't. Because like, it, it's actually true that you really, you know, I spend a lot of time with female founders and it's about, I know a lot of folks are arrogant when they come, but you really have to exude confidence, right? Because it's part of your fundraise is selling this confidence. So I, I spent a lot of time telling women, you need to show this confidence. And I sometimes I'm like, well, maybe I shouldn't because I really, I'm really going against everything I believe in, which is don't act the way you feel. But I, this is the way to get that job done. You know, when you go fundraise, male or female is to show confidence. But it's a hard call for me as well. How do you tell your female founder to be not who they are necessarily? It's a tough call. I think overall, there was nothing insane or about it a lady yeah out there fundraising I, I feel like things have probably come a, a long way it's probably telling though that our two primary investors are females something that that came to mind though that i had never thought about until you posed it but i wonder like i think that there can definitely be disadvantages to being a woman in a male-dominated space where you know that we know that the tendency is to fund people that look like you or who remind you of your younger self but i wonder if something that you know just came to me now is like one of the maybe advantages is that like as a as women, we are encouraged societally to be more open about our emotions and to express how we're how we're feeling, and that that can be sort of harder or socially more taboo for men. 
And I think that there were a lot of moments that were just really hard emotionally in a fundraise. And I think for anybody doing a fundraise, that can be really hard emotionally. Really hard. And I wonder if, yeah. And I wonder if like being two women, we were able to be vulnerable in a way that allowed us to move past those hard times in a way that like, if you didn't feel that feel comfortable, or if you didn't feel like you were able to express that might just like compound and continually get harder. I'm dying to know what's an example of an answer channeled through your powerful white guy attitude. I ask sincerely, because I'm curious about what is like, what does it look like to take on that attitude? Like what changes? I'm very curious to understand that. Well, I think it's like talking to your daughters. It's like shaking that really deeply embedded and kind of long rewarded tendency of be polite, be subservient in some ways, like be soft spoken, be kind of this like helper role almost. I feel like that is often encouraged in young women of like be sweet, you know, be kind, be compassionate. That wrapping of like what female looks like or womanhood looks like of be all these things that are just like can support something or and be vulnerable and honest and conservative and transparent. Like a lot of those things that are can be good values that are much more encouraged, I think, in women than men versus go get it, go be aggressive, like go after the ball, like take space, own the room. Those are what kids hear. Those are what I heard as a kid in that encouragement of like, go in there. It's like, imagine there's always been wind at your back and nothing to like hold you to the side of the wall. Like you're never like the assistant or the support player. You have always been the star player. That's kind of what you embody. That's great. That's great. uh, We could, we could continue this conversation for another hour. I know if folks want to look you up, where can they find you? Kim at neuronav.org, Sabrina at neuronav.org. But yeah, feel free to reach out. We'd love to chat. You can find our website, www.neuronav.org. Awesome. Okay, so Evie, what are your your dreams for what you want to do in your future? Do you have any ideas? I kind of want to be an architect because I think it would be fun to build houses and stuff like that. Okay. Anything else? And I kind of want to have some kids and then go live out on a boat and then and then just take them to see uh, land sometime. You want to you want to live on a boat and you want to have kids on a boat and then you have this idea of showing them land, right? Tell us about that idea. Because I think it would be fun for like my kids to have a big surprise like that and to see land for the first time. So they think that the ocean is actually normal life until this moment that you bring them to shore. Yeah. That's awesome. Thanks for listening today. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. Can't wait to catch you on the next episode of the Paint and Pipette podcast. I will see you next time.